When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Well, I am Matt Chorley, but this isn't quite the Red Box Podcast. Instead, we've got an extra special bonus edition for you, brought to you by the Times Daily News Podcast, Stories of Our Times. It's presented by Manvin Varna and David Ivanovich, and it tells one big story in depth each day. But this week, they'll be running a special three-part mini-series called Failures of State with the Sunday Times Insight team. They've just written the first major book, piecing together the inside story of Britain's battle with coronavirus. We thought you'd find it interesting to hear. So here is part one. You can find parts two and parts three over on the Stories of Our Times podcast. You can get that wherever you get your podcasts from and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any further episodes. So here it is as an extra bonus edition. Here's part one of their series, Failures of State. This month marks a year since COVID turned all of our lives upside down. How can we make sure a year like this never happens again? And now, as ever, to the front pages. In April, the Sunday Times exposed the dither and delay at the top of government that caused so much pain across the country. And taken all in all, it is a pretty devastating piece of journalism. According to a report in the Sunday Times, it's a pretty damning investigation by the paper saying that the government lost five weeks in the fight against coronavirus. Now, the team behind those revelations, two of the country's leading investigative journalists, have written the first major book piecing together the full story of a disastrous year. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Failures of State, Part 1. Sleepwalking into Disaster. I'm Jonathan Calvert. I'm the Insight Editor of the Sunday Times. And I'm George Abuffnot, Deputy Editor of the Insight Team. Here on Stories of Our Times, we're going to be talking to you both today, tomorrow and on Friday about your new book, Failures of State, in which you piece together the behind-the-scenes story of the last year. Today, we're focusing on the early decision-making 
in Westminster, and tomorrow we'll look at what happened over summer. Some people might say, we're gradually emerging from lockdown, vaccinations seem to be working, we're starting to see the early signs of spring. Why go back over last year's mistakes? Well, in the summer of last year, the COVID-19 bereaved families for justice group wrote to the Prime Minister and the Health Secretary demanding a immediate statutory inquiry into their handling of the pandemic. They wanted the government to learn the lessons so that future lives could be saved. We're now in the spring of 2021. More than 80,000 more people have died in a huge second wave. The bereaved families and the doctors are hugely frustrated that that's taken place. And so we felt it was important to put together a book that looked in detail at the decisions taken that might contribute in some way to a debate that might ensure that this kind of thing doesn't happen again. To understand where things started to go wrong, we need to start not in March, but four years earlier, in 2016, with Exercise Cygnus. Exercise Cygnus was a test for the country as to just how good its planning was for a future pandemic and involved all sorts of people, officials, doctors, ministers. It was a complete disaster. Hundreds of thousands of people would die. Our PPE was insufficient. Our plans were insufficient. Residential homes um, wouldn't be able to cope with the influx of old people who would be pushed out of hospitals. At the end of it all, they concluded that Britain really wasn't in any fit state to handle a pandemic if it came along. I mean, that's a really alarming warning. Were ministers who were in charge by 2020, I mean, would they have been aware of the conclusions and the warnings? Well, yes, they should well have been aware because a pandemic was the number one threat to the nation. I mean, it had been identified as such. Closed off from the outside world, Wuhan is in lockdown. Let us take you back to Wednesday, the 22nd of January, 2020. Flights have been suspended and major roads closed. The authorities are telling residents not to travel anywhere. Chinese authorities have just announced the first COVID lockdown after confirming 17 deaths from the new virus. Private notice question on uh, Wuhan novel coronavirus. Meanwhile, in London, the virus is mentioned in Parliament for the first time. My lords, the risk to the UK is currently low. And just down the road, the group of scientists advising the British government, SAGE, held its first precautionary meeting. But they hadn't yet realised the scale of the problem. COVID-19 can be traced back to China in November and it had reached Italy by December and it seems to have come into the UK around about January. But we didn't know that at the time. As SAGE met in London to discuss the threat, we now know that 40 miles away in Kent, 84-year-old Peter Atwood was severely ill in hospital with an unexplained lung condition. Initially, nobody realised that he had coronavirus. He hadn't left the country for months, so he must have picked up the virus from the UK somewhere. We don't entirely know how coronavirus came into the UK. 
Mr. Speaker, with permission, I'd like to inform the House about the outbreak of a new coronavirus in China. The UK is always well prepared for these types of outbreaks. As Mr. Atwood was fighting for his life, the Government Emergency Committee, COBRA, gathered in Whitehall. Boris Johnson was absent. Last year, Jonathan and George reported that this was the first of five such meetings he'd go on to miss. Health Secretary Matt Hancock chaired the discussion and spoke to the press afterwards to say, once again... The clinical advice is that the risk to the public remains low. The following week, on the 30th of January, Peter Atwood died in Medway Hospital. It would be months before the cause of death was confirmed. They did blood samplings on him. The post-mortem found that, in fact, he'd had COVID-19. He seems to be the first recorded death in the UK. The virus was moving faster than anyone realised. It wasn't until the day after Peter Atwood's death, January the 31st, that the NHS would make its first COVID diagnosis. It has been confirmed that there are two cases now in England. It's inside this hospital in Newcastle. Two patients are now in isolation. This is about working backwards through all the people someone might have been in close contact with, and I would like to stress that. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Three days later, on the 3rd of February... Welcome, everybody. Thank you for coming to Greenwich and I, I invite you first... Boris Johnson gives a speech in Greenwich at the Old Royal Naval College. It would be the first time he mentioned the virus in public. So this was his first big speech after delivering Brexit. This country is leaving its chrysalis. We are re-emerging after decades of hibernation. And it was supposed to be a kind of buoyant fighting speech about the new dawn of a post-Brexit world. And in it, he actually made a joke about the forthcoming pandemic. When there is a risk that new diseases such as coronavirus will trigger a panic and a desire for market segregation that go beyond what is medically rational to the point of doing real and unnecessary economic damage, then, at that moment, humanity needs some government somewhere that is willing at least to make the case powerfully for freedom of exchange. Some country ready to take off its Clark Kent spectacles and leap into the phone booth and emerge with its cloak flowing as the supercharged champion. It gave you a window into his thinking about the pandemic, which was that he didn't see it as a serious threat. And he thought that those who did see it as a serious threat were acting irrationally. So he was at Greenwich delivering this very buoyant speech. Meanwhile... With permission, I'd like to update the House on the ongoing situation with the Wuhan coronavirus. The mood in Parliament was quite serious. The epidemic has grown at a pace quite unprecedented. That's right. And John Ashworth, Labour's shadow health spokesman, he was asking some really important questions. Could he tell the House how many specialist beds there are available across the system to deal with more cases of coronavirus. How many beds were available? Also about the protective kit that the NHS staff would have available. Matt Hancock replied... The answer to his question is that we have 50 highly specialist beds. 50, and he didn't even respond on the questions about the protective kit. 
it seemed to illustrate that the government was underestimating the scale of the crisis that was to come. That sense now of the government at the time underestimating the scale of the problem, that seems to have continued throughout February. I mean, there were more COBRA meetings that took place, but where was Boris Johnson for them? That's right. I mean, so the first COBRA meeting on the 24th of January, Boris Johnson did not attend. Instead, he was hosting the Chinese ambassador at Downing Street where they were celebrating Chinese New Year. Are you concerned about the spread of the coronavirus? Ah, uh, the Chinese government is very much determined to curb this virus. At subsequent COBRA meetings that he missed, there were five in total, which stretched through January and February. He attended a Facebook Live event. We are going to unite and level up. Where he chatted about Elizabeth I and Shakespeare. Hi folks, so welcome to another edition of People's ENT. Actually, they think that Shakespeare probably played Adam in As You Like It. How about that? I bet you didn't know that. Anyway, nobody asked me that question tonight. Anybody got any more questions? No? All right. During one of the other meetings, he posted a jokey video. Hi, folks. This is the autocomplete interview. Is Boris Johnson for or against Brexit? Boris Johnson is for Brexit. Does Brexit... Happen on Friday. Brexit happens on Friday. The last COBRA meeting, the fifth one, which is in the middle of February, by then Boris Johnson was in Chavening, his grace and favour home, having a holiday. Rather than attend the COBRA meeting, he was receiving a call from the Chinese president who wanted to thank him for the donation of more than 200,000 items of Britain's protective equipment. Is it correct that by late February, the UK sent 266,000 pieces of protective equipment to China? I won't get into a detailed uh, to and fro on the Sunday Times story. More details will be Why not? It's uh, a really simple uh, question. shared with people later. Yes. Why but not? I'm not going to get into it now. China's actually the main producer of protective equipment. It was only a few weeks later where we were suffering our own chronic shortages. And it took us several weeks to get some of that PPE back from China. It's quite clear at this stage that the government, certainly Boris Johnson and his closest team, are underestimating the scale of what's about to hit. We spoke to one Downing Street advisor who was really damning. They said, it's lucky this isn't the big one, because if it was, then the Prime Minister would look like he gave a Um, It was like working for an old-fashioned chief executive in a local authority 20 years ago. There was a real sense that he didn't do urgent crisis planning. It was exactly like people feared he would be. There was a kind of sense, wasn't there, during February that he was demob happy. He delivered Brexit, had the election before Christmas, etc. And so there there was almost as if they were taking the foot off the pedal. I mean, during that period when he was on holiday, meanwhile, Storm Dennis had hit. Storm Dennis arrives this weekend across the UK. Widespread flooding problems. There's a danger to life. Volunteers with lifeboats were helping the fire and rescue service. People in flooded towns were asking, where is Boris Johnson? Boris has not made an appearance anywhere. (laughs) Very strange indeed. Boris Johnson has sort of gone to ground in Kent, hasn't been seen. I think he should come out of Westminster and come visit. Why is the Prime Minister not going up to the north where all these people voted for him and saying, look, I'm here? I don't manage the Prime Minister's diary. 
Was there a sense that, in terms of all of his government business, he just seemed a little distracted? Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I think it was almost like he was kind of taking a pause. He had quite a lot on his plate at the time in his personal life. Tonight, the couple have announced that Miss Carrie Simmons will soon be a missus, as well as a mother. Carrie was pregnant. He was finalising the divorce with his ex-wife. And so there really isn't any concentration at all on the looming threat of the virus. Meanwhile, do we know what the government was being told behind the scenes? So during that time, data had come out showing the infectivity of the coronavirus was comparable to the Spanish flu, uh, which had killed up to 100 million people. And that was what really alarmed scientists in Britain. That included Professor Neil Ferguson, who was the government's chief modeler at the time. The pandemic itself was starting to take hold across the world, and it was clear that it was moving very fast from China. Infections are rapidly building up in Italy. I remember our own editor came into our office at the beginning of February and said to us, coronavirus is, is the new Brexit. Coronavirus is going to dominate British life like nothing else. And so, you know, <laughs> in our own office, we recognised it, but the Prime Minister hadn't. Now, on the 25th of February, the Prime Minister re-emerges at a club off Battersea Park for the Conservatives' annual black and white ball. Tell me a bit about that. It was a, a fundraising event for 700 wealthy Conservative supporters who'd paid around about 15,000 each to dine on red mullet and salsa verde and artichoke washed down with champagne and white burgundy. Johnson was touting a game of tennis as his particular auction lot, and one of the supporters actually paid £90,000 to play tennis with him. Among the more unconventional lots was a trip to northern Italy, which the society magazine Tatler noted was an area currently in the grip of a coronavirus outbreak. Ah. Now, the following Monday, on the 2nd of March... Boris Johnson attends his first COBRA meeting on COVID. Does he have a good grasp of the details? Is he across his brief on this? What was quite extraordinary, actually, was around that time, he had visited a public health laboratory to check out some of the testing uh, that was going on. And some TV footage picked up his conversation with some of the officials. Wow. So when the, um, when so when the flight comes in from, from his... Do we automatically test everybody who's on the flight, or we just test people who are symptomatic? The people from the hot zones were people we had. You can hear him appearing to express surprise that there was a complete absence of testing at the UK border. His questions to the officials suggested that he assumed that we were testing people coming from Italy, but actually those tests were absolutely few and far between, and he seemed quite surprised when the officials informed him of that. Today we've published the Coronavirus Action Plan. On the 3rd of March, the day after that COBRA meeting, an action plan is unveiled. What was the plan at that point? So that was the mitigation strategy. The plan has four strands. Contain, delay, research, mitigate. But actually there was very little immediate activity as a result of these new measures. We must not forget what we can all do to fight this virus, which is to wash our hands. You knew I was going to say this, but wash our hands with soap. 
it would become a quite a theme of all the government's pronouncements from then on that new measures would only be introduced if needed. There's a key point about timing here. And um, there are a number of measures that could be taken to try and reduce the peak and flatten it a bit. And the question is at what time to implement which measures. So we don't want to go too early. This approach was based on the flu model, which was designed to cope with an epidemic that was highly infectious and in a similar way to a coronavirus. But the weakness of this approach was that the virus was far more deadly than flu and therefore couldn't really be allowed to run rampant in the same way. With the known number of UK cases now standing at 90, should we be doing more? And surely we have a right to know if there's an outbreak in our area. Now, on the 5th, Boris gives an exclusive interview to this morning. He shakes hands as he joins the set. As far as possible, it should be business as usual. He mentions herd immunity and talks about taking it on the chin. One of the theories is that, you know, uh, perhaps you could sort of take it on the chin, take it all in one, in one go and allow the disease, as it were, to, to move through the, the population without really taking as many draconian measures. I think we need to strike a balance. Who was pushing that idea? It seemed to have come from the government's pandemic planning, which was based on flu and influenza. They failed to recognise that the two diseases were very different. But I think it also seems to have played into Boris's libertarian instincts. He, He liked that. So I think it was clear that during that period, that was absolutely the government's intention. And there's going to be a point where you want to cocoon those at-risk groups um, so that they basically don't catch the disease. By the second week of March, David Halpern, the chief executive of the government's nudge unit... And by the time they you know, come out of their cocooning, um, herd immunity has been achieved in the rest of the population. And then Patrick Valance himself then started talking about herd immunity. The vast majority of people get a mild illness to build up some degree of herd immunity as well. Those are the key things we need to do. But as soon as that was declared publicly, there was a huge backlash. In terms of building up a herd immunity within the UK, what, I mean, what sort of percentage of people need to have contracted the virus? Probably about 60% or so. Si- 60%? I mean, even with that, even looking at the sort of the best case scenario, half of 1% to 1% fatality, that's an awful lot of people dying in this country people could see what was happening around the rest of the world with hospitals filling up and they were absolutely appalled that the government was deliberately not protecting the public. They could see how dangerous that was. Now, before that happened, I mean, there was already a blistering takedown of this strategy in a document from the government's modelling committee. Tell me about that. The document was passed to SAGE by a man called Professor Stephen Riley, and he's an expert in the dynamics of infectious diseases. Riley's paper makes clear, I mean, he says it, the government is following a mitigation strategy aimed at achieving herd immunity. So that's one of the government's own advisors saying that. But he had a serious critique of this policy because he was arguing that, in fact, herd immunity would never work. And there was no real way of avoiding a lockdown because what would happen is if you allowed the virus to spread freely in the population, so many people would go to hospital that the hospitals would become overrun and nobody would be able to get into hospital any longer. Huge numbers of people would die. 
And fear would grip the whole population so that actually the population would voluntarily stay at home themselves and impose, in effect, a lockdown because there would be no treatment if they got the virus. And so it would be a disaster not only for the number of people that would die from it, but also for the economy because you would have a lockdown anyway, which would last for longer because you had more infections. So the whole policy of mitigation and herd immunity that the government was pursuing in March was seriously flawed. So they'd received the warning for the Stephen Riley paper, but for two weeks, nothing seemed to happen. I mean, people used to say that the UK was better prepared than anyone for a pandemic. You know, other countries copied our pandemic plans. The government's own published pandemic strategy back in 2011 even says the UK government does not plan to close borders, stop mass gatherings or impose controls on public transport during any pandemic. The emphasis will instead be on encouraging those who have symptoms to avoid spreading their illness. When there is an inquiry, do you think the government will argue that Britain did badly, not because it didn't have a plan in those days, but because it stuck to the plan that had been pre-written for much too long. I think that that argument is sustainable up, up to the weekend of the 14th and 15th of March. At that point, the scientists had seen the error in their ways and they had modelled the mitigation approach against the lockdown approach and saw the sheer difference in deaths between the two approaches. And at that point, Johnson was advised that he now needed to lock down. Certainly, as we understand it, not only were his own scientists advising him that, but also Dominic Cummings, who at that point was deemed to be the second most powerful person in, in, in the country. On that Monday, the 16th of March, there were, according to the modelling, 320,000 infections across Britain. But over the following seven days, when Boris Johnson delayed taking action despite the advice, almost 1.2 million more infections spread across the country. So I think it would be very hard for the government to argue that the scientists were responsible or chiefly responsible for the disastrous death toll in that first wave. The vast majority of infections were spread during the period where the Prime Minister had been advised to act and, and hadn't done so. In just a moment, George and Jonathan take us inside the meetings that finally persuaded Boris Johnson to lock Britain down. Get to the heart of the stories that matter every day with The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well-lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. 
From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. On the 12th of March, 11 days before the country finally entered lockdown, Britain's strategy was baffling the rest of Europe. An important part of the science on this is actually the behavioural science. People start off with the best of intentions, but enthusiasm at a certain point starts to flag. Just to be really clear about that, the delay is to maximise the effect. Other countries, including those with fewer infections, were reaching very different conclusions. France is just hours away from a nationwide lockdown. Locking down the entire country. Spain and Germany now locking down their countries. We have to deploy these at the right time to maximise their effect. Chris Whitty was saying there was a risk that if we went into lockdown too early, people would get fatigued and they'd stop following the rules. What was the rationale for that? Where where was that thinking coming from? Because, I mean, we've spoken to some of the behavioural scientists who were advising SAGE and none of them seemed to think that was what they'd expect. No, it was very hard to understand. I mean, I remember when we were first working on this, we went through all those press conferences and listened to them saying again and again and again that they would act but there was a time for it, and the time wasn't now. We were kind of puzzled by this whole thing. Why would we wait? Why would we allow infections to get to their highest number, to the point where the hospitals are spilling over with cases, before we took any action? And in fact, the behavioural scientists we spoke to on the SBI Behavioural Committee, which advises the government on this, says they were never asked to advise on fatigue, and it certainly wouldn't have been their advice. I mean, what part of the blame should be given to the medical and scientific advisers to Sir Patrick Vallance and Chris Whitty in all of this? I think you would agree, wouldn't you, George, that at the beginning, the scientists probably got it wrong, didn't they? Yeah, I think that's right. The chief scientists, I mean, you've got to distinguish between the two, don't you? Because what we know is that in the first week of March, the government's two chief modellers, who both sat on SAGE, Professor Neil Ferguson and Professor John Edmonds, they had both done some modelling to look at the impact of the government's mitigate policy. However they modelled it, they couldn't see a scenario where there would be less than 200,000 deaths. So they actually took it upon themselves to model the lockdown approach, which showed that approach would potentially quarter the amount of deaths that would be caused. And that was the thing that made the government sit up and take notice, because they knew that if, if it became known in the country that they had deliberately opted for an, an approach that would see four times the amount of deaths, then you know, it's, it's, it's politically disastrous. So Ferguson and Edmonds should take huge credit for pressurising and forcing the government through their science to change tack. And I think to be fair to, to Valance and Witty, by the end of that second week of March, they had seen the modelling and, and come to that same conclusion. Why did that warning that the government's mitigation strategy just wasn't going to work, why didn't that raise alarm bells sooner? We understand that by the Saturday the 14th of March... Johnson and his inner team had decided that they were going to have to lock down. 
Now, the only thing that wasn't decided was when that was going to happen. Sage had recommended that Johnson lock down early that week, which began on the 16th of March. But Johnson did not heed that for an extra seven days. And what we can see from the modelling is that from Monday the 16th of March, infections were estimated at just over 300,000. It's estimated that by the 23rd of March, when he did finally lock down, they had reached 1.5 million. And it's that exponential growth in those seven days that is a single most important reason why Britain ended up with the most deaths in Europe during the first wave. Did he understand the seriousness at that stage? So we we spoke to a, um, a senior political source who was at that COBRA meeting on the 16th, and they said they were absolutely shocked. He said, and I quote, the impression I got was Boris Johnson was winging it a bit. He hadn't seen the data. He wasn't fully aware of the number of cases or what was happening around the world. And the source said, and I quote again, there was no real game plan, which is also unusual. Usually at a COBRA, they've got options and you go through them. There was none of that. It was like a bunch of people having a discussion about this thing, and it wasn't a normal COBRA meeting. Which is really surprising at a time like that. We understand that Sadiq Khan was at that COBRA meeting. He had been ringing around other mayors of big international cities to try and find out how they were tackling the virus. And according to a source, Khan said, listen, Boris, you know, Paris is locked down. Apparently Khan said to the Prime Minister, look, I'm a former human rights lawyer, you're a libertarian man. We don't do this willingly, but there is no other option. What was the response? Well, as that week went by, Johnson had agreed to lock down London. They had resolved to do a joint press conference on that Thursday afternoon between Khan and Johnson, where they, they would announce this. But then again, Johnson had second thoughts. FTSE 100 opened an hour ago. The FTSE has fallen very, very sharply. And the FTSE, I can tell you, is now officially in bear market territory. This shows you changes in the FTSE 100. Trillions of pounds has been wiped off the value of shares in recent days. That is the third biggest weekly fall that we've seen since this index was created. He called in Dominic Cummings and they apparently decided that they were worried about a run on the markets if it was announced on that Thursday midweek with the markets open. And so they decided to delay it. Although Cummings, we understand he'd actually approached the army to talk about how they could try and lock down London and prevent people flooding to their country homes across the rest of the country and therefore carrying the virus across, because they, they could see that that had happened in Paris. Yeah, they, had, <laughs> they got pretty close to it, but concerns about the economy was the thing that got in the way at the end of that week. And that, that again, had huge implications because over that weekend, the Saturday and Sunday, there were more than 400,000 new infections just on that Saturday and Sunday. Boris had actually gone, <laughs> taken another break at Chequers. Failing to act that week really did make a huge difference to what happened afterwards. The COVID meeting on the Friday, the 20th of March, again, to the astonishment of those present, Johnson didn't turn up to the meeting. <laughs> which they, they found inexplicable. Um, so Gove was chairing it. Minister, are you planning to put in social distancing? Minister, are you worried about the economy? Those present were just astonished that at such a critical moment <laughs> in the country's history, he wasn't at the meeting where they, they were discussing it. The sources we've spoken to at that Cobra meeting turned up and were just bemused to see that it was Gove in the chairman's seat. On the Monday morning, the Monday of lockdown, 
all the data showed that still quite a lot of people were traveling in to work in in the big cities. Mm. And, and one of the other issues that had arisen was that France had locked down and Macron, the French president, was extremely unimpressed that British people who weren't locked down were allowed to travel freely into France, spreading the virus. And so we understand that he, he issued an ultimatum to Boris Johnson that he would close the border unless he took far stricter measures on our own population. And at that point, sometime on that Monday, I think they took the decision, didn't they, that they had to lock down, they had no choice. There now follows a ministerial broadcast from the Prime Minister. Good evening. The coronavirus is the biggest threat this country has faced for decades. I urge you, at this moment of national emergency, to stay at home, protect our NHS and save lives. Thank you. Well, in the next episode, we're going to look at what really happened across the country after the first lockdown was declared. But around this time, the Prime Minister was going to get his own view of what was happening inside hospitals, because on the 27th of March... Hi, folks, I want to bring you up to speed with something that's happening today, which is that I've developed mild symptoms of the coronavirus. Be in no doubt that I can continue, uh, thanks to the wizardry of modern technology, can communicate with all my top team. This news literally has broken in the last couple of minutes. The Prime Minister has gone to hospital. As I understand it, these are purely precautionary reasons and he remains in charge. Breaking news coming into us within the past few seconds. Uh, the Prime Minister is being now admitted into intensive care. Tell me about that. Tell me about that period. It was on the Sunday evening, April the 5th. Actually, the Queen was doing a broadcast to rally the nation. We will be with our friends again. We will be with our families again. We will meet again. He was rushed across Westminster Bridge by car to St Thomas's Hospital and is understood to have received oxygen during the short journey to ease his distress. He was in quite a serious condition. He was taken into a private room on the 12th floor and the following day the Monday his aides were very much downplaying the seriousness of his condition. He's still in hospital under observation he's being given regular updates on developments and he continues to lead the government. They were saying that he was only in the hospital for routine tests. He was far more serious than anyone was letting on. And meanwhile back at Downing Street the height of the pandemic and our response just kicking off the response was really being led by a team of four, Dominic Raab, Rishi Sunak, Michael Gove and Matt Hancock. How was that playing out? There wasn't really anyone in charge, really. Uh, Raab was deputising for the Prime Minister, but there was no real decision maker. I mean, apparently at times Mark Sedwell was called in to kind of adjudicate between them. So the Cabinet Secretary was trying to make things happen. Yes, exactly. Without the Prime Minister, you didn't have the chief decision maker. And so you had this really important time. We'd just gone into lockdown. There were big issues that needed to be solved. And yet the man who should have been at the helm was desperately ill in hospital. When Boris Johnson did recover and return to duty in April, having just left intensive care and having spent weeks in hospital... Had it changed him? He suddenly seemed to understand the power of the infection and how damaging it could be. 
He came out on the Downing Street steps. Good morning. I'm sorry I've been away from my desk. Everyone believed at the time that he was going to adopt a really cautious approach through the summer. He seemed to have kind of seen the light. He said, we must recognise the risk of a second spike. The risk of losing control of that virus. That would mean not only a new wave of death and disease, but also an economic disaster. He added, So I know it is tough, and I want to get this economy moving as fast as I can, but I refuse to throw away all the effort and the sacrifice of the British people and to risk a second major outbreak and huge loss of life and the overwhelming of the NHS. But as the months would go on, he wouldn't necessarily keep to that. In fact, he didn't keep to it. Join us tomorrow for part two. What led to the disaster that unfolded this winter? Boris was being lobbied. And then Rishi Sunak intervened. And we must learn to live with it and live without fear. A warning from all four chief medical officers that the health services are at risk of being overwhelmed. Alas, the death figures are rising. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. With me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Jonathan Calvert and George Arbuthnot, The Sunday Times Insight Team, and the authors of Failures of State, the inside story of Britain's battle with coronavirus. Today's episode was produced and sound designed by James Shield and mixed by Falcon Kisseltuk. The executive producer is Poppy Damon. We'll be back tomorrow with part two. See you then.